This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing that. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Chucky, wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. And your suffering will be legendary even in hell. <laughs> it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all flow down here. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, you're On our show tonight, Howling Under the Full Moon, we will explore Charles Band's Empire Full Moon Entertainment. We've got trancers, sci-fi epics, and vampires all in one place. When you need a break from reality, let our host show you through the madhouse of killer bombs, psychopathic cookies, and maniacal puppets. Don't be a squid and join us in the fun. comes into the trap, it's our job to fish it out. What, what the hell is this? What do we do with it? I'll take care of it. This is a no deposit, no return kind of business. Has Miss Yost said anything more about this vessel? Just hold on one second, I'm gonna show you something that'll knock your socks off. overriding passion, a thing for which he will kill. What about the human specimens? folks welcome once again to cinema degenerations howling at the full moon where we celebrate everything and anything relating to the charles band empire of motion pictures uh this week we're bringing you the 1997 directed by charles band himself hideous uh from full moon pictures uh written by ned marshall stevens as benjamin carr uh Filmed in 1996, 1997, but it feels like it's 1985, but we won't hold that against it. <laughs> and joining me this week is my usual co-host and cohort in crime, Dustin Hubbard. How are we doing? I'm doing great, thank you. It's been a while since we've done one of these. I know we have uh, several episodes in the can, you know, in, in, in various stages of editing and production, but we haven't done this for, God, 
probably a month or so by now, I think. It has been a hot minute. I know we have some pretty pretty good shows banked so far, but it's good to get back in the saddle and discuss a, a movie that I'm sure there's a lot to say about. <laughs> yeah, there's a, this is a weird flick. You know, I, I'm not sure where you're going to come in on it because we haven't really just dis- usually we have a more of a pre-show discussion, but we've mostly been catching up, folks, and we haven't talked here in a month. We've all we had uh, some f- health issues uh, all around on both sides, so you know we're taking care of having some self-help uh, help self-help moments here. So we're taking care of some things, but we're getting back into the swing of things. And yeah, this movie it's. It's it it's a weird one. It's it's a weird one. It's it's in that weird stage, you know, between the the Paramount days and the current run of things with you know Ginger Dead Man and uh, you know the Evil Bong series. So it was at that weird kind of stage where I I kind of feel like like Band was just kind of fishing for new ideas and didn't know which direction he wanted to go. <laughs> this is definitely probably one of the weirder full moon movies uh concept wise now i know the guy who read uh who wrote this ned stevens it said he was credited as benjamin carr but he had done blade the iron cross several other puppet master sequels trophy heads uh raven wolf towers among others yeah, Neil Marshall Stevens, he's been, he's had numerous names over the years, but yeah, he, I believe he sometimes goes by Neil Marshall Stevens, he's been known exclusively for many years for Full Moon, he was writing under uh, Benjamin Carr, and then some of the newer Full Moon era stuff he's been doing as Roger Barron, so. Well, let's talk about the opening of this film. Uh, like I've already said, it, start, uh, it was filmed in 96 to 97, but it sure feels like something that was made in like 10 years previous. Like it, it has that very, um, I don't know, that that mid-80s canon films type of feel to it, especially in the beginning until we get into the meat and potatoes of the film. But these sewage treatment workers, like I do not envy their job at all. I don't, do not envy the actors who played them at all. And was it me or was this opening scene like the rest of the film felt fine, but the opening scene felt like it was very badly dubbed. They supposedly <laughs> supposedly the the two actors who played uh, the other uh, sewage treatment plant workers whose character names, I believe, are Alfie and Dougie or Alf and Dougie. Mm-hmm. They. They say in the commentary that they were two of the only English-speaking Romanians <laughs> that were accessible. So supposedly they they could speak, but maybe a lot of it was post-dubbed. I'm not sure. But anytime I think you get one of these very European-feeling full moon movies, you've got a lot of people who are either weirdly dubbed or they're speaking a lot of uh, dialogue that is coming out of their mouth phonetically and they have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, I think very few actors that they used regularly uh, that were <laughs> Romanians, did they actually understand the language and could speak it like uh, Ion Hajduk, who played uh, the detective in the, the subspecies sequels. You know, he could, he can speak moderate English or uh, Serban Celia, I believe could speak moderate English, but most of them, can't 
<laughs> so, <laughs> well, Andrew Johnston, who played Marty or Martin, also is is I don't know if it was just some really weird ADR or if he was just putting on that that good old boy kind of accent, that kind of redneck hillbilly type accent, just a little thick. But it just felt very weird in the audio. Yeah, that's kind of how I always took it was he was just kind of playing like this just sort of very backwoods hickish dude. And let, let's be honest, like how weird is I've always been fascinated at what their job was because like, so is there just a huge <laughs> like flow like because it looks just like a reservoir or something where there's, you know, just sewage gushing through and they basically sit there with like what look like pool nets, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I was confused on what their job was really supposed to be. They're just supposed to be fishing out the big chunks of, of garbage that come in there. I mean, is that really a, a position and a job? Yeah, like, is that a real job to, like, stand there and kind of just, like, fish around in the shit water, basically, trying to, like, find stuff? Like, I don't really understand yeah. it. There are people who actually do that job. I, I pity them. Because that's got to be a real, no pun intended, real shitty job. But, uh, I mean... <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> I guess weirder jobs do exist, so who knows? I guess uh, that's a question. Kno- yeah, I was going to say, who knows? Mr. Benjamin Carr. <laughs> so, could... We can get a hold of him, Benjamin, if you're listening. You know, Let us know. Contact us and let us know. <laughs> Is this really a position that really exists? And if it's so, how much do they get paid? Because it's not enough. It's certainly not enough. You can pay me enough to do that job. I love that he has such a such job security, and that you know he's like on the back burner for uh, the the woman uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, oh, um, Mrs. Yost, Miss Yost. <laughs> He's like on on her kind of like payroll to like keep an eye out for <clears throat> logical oddities that are just kind of like passing through the shit reservoir. Yeah, uh, who was it uh, that played her? Uh, Tracy May Wagner. I read this written down here. Is Tracy May Miss Belinda Yost? She is probably one of the most probably one of the most colorful characters in this movie. I mean, it's a very small cast. I mean, there's what eight nine people in it, you know, tops. And she is one of the most colorful characters, but not my favorite character. We'll get into my favorite character when they get introduced here in a little bit. But I love when, like, she's being introduced. Now, when I watched this, I watched this twice in preparation. I watched it once with the 13 Nights of Elvira introduction. And I love, like, when she's, when, you know, Miss Yost is introduced, she's drinking and smoking. And Elvira is just like, yeah, that's the kind of job I want to have. I'm like, yeah, I kind of want a job where I can, like, drink scotch and smoke you know on the job and still be considered like doing my job but i love the introduction of this movie the that great title sequence where you're seeing all the little physical or the you know the medical oddities that has a very basket case kind of feel to it like the the latter basket case sequels that's the feeling that i got from this picture that it had a very, you know, like basket case two, basket case three kind of feeling with all the, you know, the morbid, you know, oddities that it had in it. Definitely. 
trying to think of like where where we you know we do this show usually kind of linear but there's so much craziness going on uh but the the character that that, that gives me the most uh, trouble here <laughs> or at least the one i i have the most uh, of an issue with is alvina shaw uh ronda griffith uh i had to look it up because i was like wow this actress i mean and i apologize miss griffin if you're listening out there it, it, it was painfully obvious that this was her first film. I, like, I, I felt like that was also supposed to be part of her character, is that she's very aloof and very, you know, as, as everybody is in this movie, is very eccentric and very weird. But she's very, uh, just very aloof. And I just, <laughs> yeah, she's totally clueless. She, she's it's like, she was an, you know, she could have very much been an extra out of the movie clueless. It's It's very much... Like every character in this movie is like an over the top cartoonish caricature played by human beings. <laughs> to the point, like Alvina Shaw is so bizarrely stupid that it boggles the mind at points, like some of the things that she says and does. But I think that that actually plays into a lot of the. Uh, the the good writing because I do think this is actually one of um, Benjamin Carr's you know slash yada 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 um, one of his better scripts because it's each each of the characters are so weirdly colorful and it's got some of the best comedic dialogue amongst characters and like you know Alvina says and does some really bizarrely stupid shit in this movie but it's always thoroughly entertaining to watch to me <laughs> well Alvina's got the running gag where anytime they're being ordered around to do something she always just says oh me too and it's like it finally gets to the point where just like I feel like the audience and the, the rest of the cast <laughs> is on the same page like yeah you too just just come on <laughs> But oh, yeah, uh, I love uh, I love how at the beginning though with Martin, they they fish something out of the out of the sewage treatment place that just looks like a great big pile of to me it just looked like a great big tumor or some an afterbirth or something, and like how nonchalantly he just like wheels it you know he's just like oh I'll take that. and he just wheels it in a little wheelbarrow and just happens to have a cooler set off to the to the side, you know, to, to take these medical oddities that he just happens to find in the sewage. Like, does he find these things so often that, you know, he just keeps a cooler there for everyday usage? I mean, that's what it appeared to be to me. But, yeah, I, 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 you know, his method of, like, transporting these medical oddities is just like, yep, I'm just keeping a rando igloo cooler off to the side to just transport these things. But then we get our introduction to, you know, uh, Miss, uh, Miss Yost and Elvina Shaw for the first time. And, God, she's the worst. Is she, is she not the worst receptionist or secretary in the history of the film? I mean, stop me if I'm wrong, but she's got to be the worst. She's pretty awful. I, one thing that I find humorous is, is that, like, watching this movie reminded me of re-watching Horror Vision to a degree because... When she tries to contact, you know, to tell Miss Yost that uh, Martin's on the phone, she, like, has to 
she uses like some weird arcane version of like I guess an instant messenger on the desktop to tell her right. on the phone the the F O N E. Yeah, yeah, on F O N E. And I like the fact that like even though they had some sort of instant messenger, like they still had a Rolodex. Like that really tells you like where this movie takes place, folks. I mean, it's nineteen ninety seven. Is this like? And Miss Yost answers the phone in in her office while the other phone is still off the hook and not put on hold, which in reality, you and I being old enough, we know that you would like she would have to like put that call on hold. You know what I mean? Like to try right, right. for business phone like that that's got like lines that you, you know, park. <laughs> right, <laughs> so right. like that call, I don't think that she would have been able to just pick it up but i don't know maybe <laughs> so that just didn't seem like it made any sense to me but you know but does it does it really need to make sense especially where this movie ends up going i mean it, it, it really makes sense that biological oddities would come to life and kill people yeah i'm looking into things too much so <laughs> <laughs> right right you know the character uh that tracy may wagner plays is great i love Belinda Yost, uh, Mrs. Yost, or Miss Yost, is she's great. I mean, she's a great uh, villain. And, you know, we get into, like, you know, everybody's kind of a villain in this movie. The human characters are just not really, how do you want to say, they're not really horrible people, but they're not exactly good characters. You don't really have anybody that is worthy of being rooted for. Like me, I felt myself rooting for the uh, pretty much just rooting for the uh, the creatures. Yeah, everyone's just kind of in in stuff for themselves in this movie. And Lorca even says that later that like everyone's got their you know their thing. You know when he says like you know for Miss Shaw it's money and you know I think he says that you know for Napoleon it's you know medical oddities. <laughs> He's like you know and for you know Elvina. Meh. Bingo, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I actually wrote that line down. Bingo, perhaps. <laughs> and she's like, huh? <laughs> Again, she is so clueless. She would give Alicia Silverstone and Clueless a run for her money. I'm telling you. Like, wow. But then we get our, our, our first introduction to Dr. Lorca and that beautiful castle. That castle is just you know, it seems to be a running theme with a lot of Fullman movies is always to have a creepy cl- castle in there. But they're so, so, it's so well shot. It's a very meticulously shot uh, location, you know. But we get Dr. Lorca and the unusual Miss Sheila, who is always in a pair of hot pants and a very revealing vest that basically she remains topless for the entire freaking film and considering that it was filmed in the wintertime you know in the snow uh the actress who plays a uh, sheila jacqueline lovell Le- or lavelle sorry <clears throat> she must have been so uncomfortable and so damn cold i can't imagine how difficult that shoot must have been for her i'm sure it was probably pretty miserable but she always seemed pretty game for whatever so she was pretty much like you know let's go <laughs> for about anything that full moon usually asked her to do so uh she took a real hit on that one <laughs> so well that was one of her i mean it was not her i know it wasn't her first movie 
uh, for Full Moon, but I mean, it was one of one of her uh, first movies for Full Moon, wasn't it? Or was it her second movie for Full Moon? It was definitely one of the earlier ones. She had already, I believe, by that point, started to do work uh, through the Seduction Cinema line. Because um, I think Head of the Family came before this, didn't it? A year or two before it? Head of the Family and Femalian 1 both came out, I believe, the year prior to this. So the year of Hideous, she would have done probably, I believe, this and probably like the Erotic House of Wax, I think. So, But after that, I mean, she stayed pretty nonstop busy for Full Moon over the years after that. She became a, a fan favorite and a, a general overall mace mainstay because she ended up going on to be kind of the face of uh surrender cinema with things like lolita 2000 and you know the girls of surrender cinema she was in dakota's killer eye obviously head of the family so and later as as modern as like trophy heads so where she came back to play herself in a, a comedic uh turn as a version of herself so and let's speak about the comedic angle of her performance. She is great as Sheila. Uh, I, I, I said we would talk about it when we got to the character. Sheila is my favorite character in this movie. She is just, I mean, like especially when she pops out in her uh, in her best best outfit out of the car when when she uh, <laughs> when she gets old uh, Mel Johnson Jr. his Napoleon Lazar, you know, and she kind of waylays him. Wearing that like silly ass uh, gorilla mask, yep. Yep. and she's just like in hot pants in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it's great. She's got some great lines. She's got some great comedic talent. I've I've seen some of the more you know the erotic cinema, you know, surrender cinema type stuff that she's done. She's a beautiful woman, but she is just got some great comedic timing. I would have liked to have seen her do. You know what I mean? Just just some more comedic roles like that, yeah. or like this one. She was always the, you know, there was a reason, I think, why she was, became, you know, the face of Surrender Cinema. I mean, she was even in their ads that would promote the then SurrenderCinema.com website. You know, she was, she was the face of the label. She was the one who, you know, had the charisma, and she had the, she had the looks, obviously. But um, she was a good actress. That's, you know... I mean, you can put anyone in, you know, softcore material, but being a good actress or actor for that matter, you know, that's not as easy as just taking your clothes off, you know, and she was actually a good actress and she proved it in movies like this because, and later on in uh, uh, Trophy Heads and even Head of the Family before this, because her comedic timing is on point. Oh, yes, it is spot on. Yeah, and she can do it like, with the straightest face and like play the game and not break, <laughs> like, which is not something that I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people don't realize how hard comedy can be. Like, it's hard to be funny. <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to have good comedic chops. And Jacqueline Lavelle was always like, she is a, she was and is a good actress and she has great comedic time. And it's very much, uh, taken advantage of and hideous because everything about Sheila is a performance. <laughs> yeah, like I pretty much would lo- I, I would love to see like a, a standalone movie about the Sheila character. Like, I don't think any other actors could have probably played that role. 
Down. No, no. She and reminds me a lot. It's and strong and straight faced while still with no no top on and, and hot pants, but still being like dignified and strong and not seem trashy. You know? well, at, I don't, at one I don't point, you know, Lazar doesn't isn't he the character who refers to her as a cheap slut? And she's like, listen, slut I can handle. Like, I got no problem with that label, but I'm an expensive slut. I am not cheap. <laughs> Yo! <laughs> yeah, he loves calling cheap slut and a hoe. So. <laughs> you know what she she does remind me of? And maybe, I don't know if you'll agree with me on this one. She reminds me of more of a female Tim Thomerson. She has that great comedic time, timing, but can do it so deadpan. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if, just because you said that, now I have to say it. I have to mention the movie that shall shan't be mentioned can you imagine if they'd use someone like jack lavelle to play joe death in trancer six you know it might have been it might have been i might have been able to stomach that movie if she'd have been in it one of the movie's main issues i think is is it not trying to hate on that actress uh zd sullivan but it's just you know we've said this in other previous shows but tim thomerson's a hard act to follow it's nothing against anyone it's just you're either Thomerson yeah. or you're not. <laughs> so, like we've related it back to like, you know, that was one instance like with uh, another series, you know, like with Evil Dead. You know, when they rebooted that, they were smart not to have the Ash character in that because how do you have anybody else play Ash besides Bruce Campbell? It's just like, how do you have anybody play Jack Death besides Tim Thomerson? It's the odds are stacked against you tenfold. Yeah, so, it's, so it's someone- a hard act to follow. Someone like Jacqueline Lavelle might have been able to actually take something like that and do something with it. But, you know, that happened in a parallel dimension than then we never saw it. So, yeah. You know, some people always say if you if you had a time machine, what would you do? I'd go back and, and prevent uh, Transfer 6 from ever happening <laughs> or maybe at least get uh, Lavelle to, to play Joe Death, you know. But again, you know, there were probably a few other movies under the full moon canon. I'd. <laughs> I'd I'd stop before Transfer Six, but Transfer Six is definitely a uh, a stop down the line. So <laughs> this is like, listen, we'll just make a checklist of which ones we're going to stop from being made. <laughs> we'll, save, we'll save some of those other titles for when they actually get get reviewed. But uh, I could name a few. <laughs> uh, uh, Killjoy Two, perhaps? No. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. We have to mention, at least in part, uh, we mentioned him a little bit here in passing, Mel Johnson Jr., uh, who, who was the producer, you said, of the a lot of... Uh, now, I forgot the name of the line of films, but the, the Killjoy, Vault, Ragdoll, Horrible Dr. Bones, but uh, the more of the urban line of Full Moon films that came out. Now, he was the head of that, in, that division, wasn't he? Yes, Mel Johnson Jr. was hired as the uh, face of and head chairman for uh alchemy entertainment slash big city uh alchemy entertainment that's what i was trying to remember i believe alchemy was only used i believe on the first film which was ragdoll and after that it was kind of like facelifted into big city but mel was the the lead producer producer who oversaw 
uh, the films under that line. So, you know, and, and they kept him busy. This uh, this movie specifically is unfortunately the only movie he acted in for Full Moon, which is uh, unfortunate because he's a, a damn fine actor. So, Yeah, he's great. I mostly remember him from playing Benny in Total Recall. But he was in a lot of TV shows, you know, I mean, a lot of stuff in the 80s, you know, My Two Dads, Designing Women, Life Goes On, you know, I mean, The Munsters were crying out loud. But, you know, he, he, yeah, give me a break. (laughs) Star Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I mean, hell, he even kind of came out of retirement a little bit because he he hadn't acted in recent years, but he was on an episode of uh, uh, Jessica Jones on Netflix just a a year or two ago. So. Yeah, he's a a great actor, but it's unfortunate that he only acted in this one movie, but for Full Moon. But what a role, Napoleon Lazar! He is the the yin to uh, Doctor Lorca. He, that they are the yin and yang to each other. They are two eccentric millionaires uh, that, that collect you know medical oddities and whatnot. And this is a part you know we're not going completely linear here. I'll jump ahead a little bit. There's a, a moment where they're where they storm. Dr. Lorca's castle later on. And, you know, they talk about the castle, where it had been overseas, that he had it removed brick by brick <laughs> and then rebuilt on the, the site where the, you know, the where they're supposed to be at, wherever they're supposed to be at in America, even though it's Romania. But it said that he had only gotten a, a $50 million inheritance. I really feel like dismantling that huge-ass castle brick by brick and then rebuilding it would have cost a hell of a lot more than his 50 million dollar fortune would have like allowed and now keep in mind that was 50 million in 1996 dollars <laughs> right, right. still i still feel like that's that's just not a like not a, not a realistic number <laughs> to dismantle buildings and you know re reconstitute them in different geographic locations but you know for for that being said it is a pretty damn fine looking castle because it's a it's a great location that's one thing this movie has like many full moon movies of of that era is is like just ridiculous castle locations <laughs> so it's amazing yeah, how beautiful full, location yeah it's amazing how full moon was always so resourceful at having concepts to utilize castles for <laughs> so yep. they are kind of the modern day hammer films i mean hammer films always had a castle in there somewhere you know that they always used and reconstituted and used again and again you know uh I, i've often said that you know full moon kind of is or you know or at least was at one time when they utilized the castles as much as they used to it was kind of like a modern day hammer films you know, yeah. maybe the films are a little bit more lowbrow, but we don't mind. Yeah, and it, these stories didn't always have to be like, you know, period pieces either or anything. Because like this movie right. is totally modern for its for its day. It might have aged a little weird at points, but like it's totally a modern film just set in a oddly right. set castle. <laughs> <laughs> now, what do you think? Like, I, I, I want to pick your brain here a little bit. And what do you think, like, the, the allure was to Dr. Lorca and Napoleon Lazar and their, their thing of just trading and selling and collecting medical oddities? You know, they never really get into it. Uh, the Dr. Lorca character, when we get too far ahead of ourselves, is played by Michael Cincinnati. And, you know, his 
been in a ton of stuff, starting with a Goodfellas, to, you know, as one of his earlier films. He is great as Dr. Lorca, but I would have loved some backstory to his character and Lazar of why, why they, you know, I don't know. Like, why were they collecting these things? Like what could possibly get people into the collecting of these medical oddities? Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's something that's not really ever discussed or really um, uh, explored much, but it is a definitely bizarre um, interest to have <laughs> is like collecting weird like deformities and <laughs> deformed creatures and things like that. But um, it's definitely the highest order of eccentricity, I think. So, and, and yeah. The the two of them are such top notch comedic actors that they just own the eccentricity of the characters and really just wear it on their sleeves and play it for like total over the top hammy uh, laughs because they're so serious <laughs> about everything oh, yeah. they, everything they say and do and. Uh, say some of the most like ridiculous lines and dialogue like about you know stuff that i can't even quote that you know like just kind of ogling and just looking at bizarre you know freaks and jars and stuff and they do it with completely you know controlled panache that i don't right. think your actors probably could have done with a straight face i mean they are laughing in some moments but it's like i think it's the characters laughing at situations and stuff not really because the actors couldn't contain themselves but it's just uh the, the whole concept is weird about people who like to collect weird biological uh oddities and the weird <laughs> underground world of people who would be trying to outdo each other and <laughs> trying to have like the best collection of weird deformed creatures and pickle like jars. collections bigger than yours <laughs> <laughs> You can look at my collection and say that, you know, yours is better than mine. <laughs> right. Have... Like where uh, Lorcas tells uh, Lazard, he's like, if you can look at my collection and honestly say to yourself, you know, that anything you have is even close to what I got. And he's like, you know, then you will admit defeat. <laughs> it just seems so very uh, like upper echelon, but like they're just such weird characters. And it's funny too, because right after he challenges Lazar to that to that end, there's the moment when Lazar walks into the room and he kind of sits down and he's just sort of like frazzled with defeat and he's carrying a jar with him. He sits it down on the floor and it's it's open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Holding it from like the neck of the jar, and I'm thinking like that would be contaminating the the property, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which I thought it's was kind not of funny. sealed anyway. Same as when. Um, when Sheila first delivers Double Face to to uh, Doctor Lorca, and when he brings him in 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 the jar, the specimen jar, and sits him next to the other three uh, primary oddities, he's just like a big mass, like sitting in an empty jar. <laughs> like there's nothing. There's no liquid in there to like. You know, there. I guess there was no real direct concern to, to, to pickle him right away to preserve him. So he's just kind of like chilling in the jar in like open yeah. air. 
Well, the way they just tossed him in a cooler and just transferred him from cooler to jar to shelf, there's really no concern about, like you said, the pickling or preservation side of things. But yeah, double face, that's a good way to describe him, our our primary oddity. You know, he has two mouths and two sets of eyes. And he kind of, you know, he looks like, uh, oh, what's the character's name from, uh, I'm I'm having a brain fart here, but uh, from Head of the Family. Myron Stapool. My yes, Myron. Yeah, he kind of reminds me of what he would look like if he had like the dual eye sets and stuff. He, it just was a little reminiscent to that. But then again, I know that this you know came what uh, the year after or two years after. Yes, Myron Stackpole, who's actually played by Michael Citronetti. Oh yeah. <laughs> See, yeah, yeah, here you go. Yeah, you yeah you have your four your four primary oddities. You have. Double face, who is the lead one who has sort of telepathic powers and is able to resurrect the other ones. You've got him, you've got the blimness, which is the sort of just like massive uh flesh that kind of has no face kind of a, eyeball. Yeah, blob blob with yeah. the face, sort of. Yeah. And then Porcupine Baby and uh Hulk Baby. Is that their official names, Hulk Baby and Porcupine Baby? Yes. <laughs> I was wondering. I was wondering that because I hadn't watched any behind-the-scenes stuff about this this one yet. I just I w- just watched the film itself. I was wondering what their official like in canon yeah, names were. The, the general consensus of a lot of people that worked on the film to everyone's favorite was Hulk Baby. So <laughs> <laughs> I know that of the bunch too. I mean, you know, you can pay to have you know these props you know built and articulated stuff but of the four of them hulk baby was the one with the most uh articulation and opera operable uh machinations so he was the one who that's why he's more mobile and doing a lot of the you know yeah a lot lot of the a lot of the physical work yeah, because they sang because i mean those characters like double face and the blimness they don't really do a lot physically you know uh porcupine baby kind of does but the other two don't really do much i mean the blimness shoots like a gun but that's about it so <laughs> oh yeah now i i'm trying to figure out where where we were with this before we went off on a tangent but when mm-hmm. we get uh the topless gorilla mask wearing sheila my, my thought on that one was it's got to be cold and she just straight up steals his shit, you know, steals his oddity, leaves him handcuffed, uh, leaves uh, Lazar handcuffed around a a tree. And they said, what, for 14 hours? Yeah. I think it was what he says later on when he gets to the, you know, when he goes to the, the, the police, and or not the police, but when he goes to uh, um, Miss Yost. And Miss Yost is it's kind of the intermediate. She is the, the lady, you know, for folks listening at home, she is the intermediate between these between Lorca and Lazar as she sells these people, their, their physical oddity, their medical oddities. And she even has a line at one point. She's like, well, you remember when Michael Jackson was trying to get the, the elephant man, you know, skeleton, he didn't get it because he didn't come to me. Yeah. So that's that, <laughs> like, That was a, a weird little thing because it made me remember. Oh yeah, he did try getting that that damn thing, didn't he? So I guess uh, you know these guys are even richer than MJ was back in the day. 
And and a funny thing to note too is is there's that whole funny sequence where she's like, oh, you're gonna do this, and you're gonna write me a check for this much, and you're gonna also sign a sign a document promising to buy X amount, you know, like hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical uh, oddities from me for the next like ten years. And he's like, oh, how generous of me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you know she like she she has this way that she talks to Napoleon that would never fly in today's. <laughs> today's politically correct society because around that period is when she says the line make it snappy nappy and she keeps calling yeah. him and she keeps calling him nappy for like she calls him nappy four or five times after that throughout the course of the yeah. movie i, I had a problem with that like, in today's political climate uh, pc climate and whatnot that would never fly in a film and i realized like she was saying nappy because his name is is Napoleon, but the fact that he's an African American man. That yes. I just heard the word nappy, and to me, that was like a slight on his ethnicity. So. Yeah, that's definitely where I took it. And like, but the second time she said it, I was just like, well, maybe yeah, she's saying it because he's Napoleon. I'm like, nap, Napoleon, yeah, I nappy. Really but. never thought of it that way. That could have honestly been one of the in, the approaches to it but at the same time it probably was intended to work as a double entendre as well because at root let's be honest she's a bitch she's a great oh, yeah, she's a backstabbing she's a horrible person alcoholic drug addict probably like nympho bitch who's only concerned about herself so it's probably not above her to make a you know a racial slight here and there so yeah that was a Every time she says that, it just it just made me cringe. I was just like, "This this is not good," <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's one of those things. This did not age well. Uh, I I do love the one part. Uh, I, I'm jumping ahead and jumping back here, but when uh, Napoleon Lazar gets you know double cross and gets his uh, oddity stolen from him, there's a big sign on the side of the road that just says "Private Road." And he even gets out of the car with that little moment of exposition. Who's on my private road? And it's like, yeah, we we, we get it. It's a private road. You don't have to expand upon that at all. <laughs> I also love the other sign. I don't remember if it said danger or caution, but quicksand. <laughs> no, it says danger, quicksand, you know, which yeah. really never gets used anywhere. Yeah. You know, it's, it never becomes a plot device other than just to show this sign that says danger, quicksand. But I'm like, really? Quicksand here in Romania, in the, the frozen woods. Truthfully, if and if you know, like Napoleon was like tied up on that tree out by his private road for fourteen hours, how did he not freeze to death or like get hypothermia or something? Right, like, right. Uh, but you know, I love the, she is. He's like, you can have my car, and she's like, it's okay, I got my own. <laughs> like, yeah. even says something to her about you know like why are you you know why are you wearing this why why are you wearing this like topless with a gorilla mask she's like i am woman uh, or oh god there was some sort of line she had there where she's like i am me i am woman i am here or something i'm, I'm, I'm woman <laughs> or something like that right right she's uh, just a so like she's like a very em empowered woman who's not ashamed of doing shit how she wants and 
you know, just like there's that line later, dude, where the the detective, the private investigator guy, and he's like, he tells her that, you know, she really pulls off the vest and the hot pants. He's like, you know, a lot of people couldn't pull off a look like that with company, but uh, you do it well. <laughs> and she well, does. Was, she just has the confidence, you know, it's, and, that's what's great about her character. Yeah, well, she's just like sitting on top of a table, you know, serving like, you know, like watercress that she like made. <laughs> you know, to serve the, the salmon pate and watercress sandwiches. <laughs> they they make such a point to to talk about those salmon and watercress sandwiches at like three different points. Company's like, ooh, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you got the salmon and watercress, and he's like really excited about it. So, and we have to talk about the uh, uh, the. Uh, the character of Detective Leonard, Jerry O'Connell. He, he like, I, I like, he was the second best character of this movie, for me at least, because he he felt like he was a missing sleuth out of like a, you know, a 40s, 50s era Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney movie. And he knew it. Like, I yeah. think like that was definitely what he was going for. Yeah, he's very noir feeling. Yes, very much so. Yeah, Jerry O'Donnell was his name. Very accomplished actor in a lot, a lot of things. Uh, I was like looking at his, uh, <clears throat> I was looking at his IMDb. I mean, like, he's done a lot of like TV, like Mad Men, Bosch, you know, I mean, Mom, like here lately, Criminal Minds. He's done a lot of stuff. He was even in one of my favorite series here just a couple of years ago, The Orville. You know, I was like, I didn't recognize him. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, oh, I recognized him, but I was like, what from? You know, it was like, I knew I knew him from something, but. He's been quite a few things. X, like he's been all over the place. So, but when the, they go to the, the the private detective, you know, Detective Leonard, to basically, he's gonna how are you gonna say he's gonna grill our <laughs> Elvina Shaw character to basically figure out, you know, he he's convinced that she's the one that you know tipped off uh, Lorca about this oddity that you know. Uh, Miss Yost was going to supposed to give Dr. Lorca first dibs. She ends up selling it to Lazar instead. That's why Sheila intercepts it and steals it. Well, and the detective, you know, for all his, you know, he's very much a bumbling kind of detective, but he is right. You know, he has some unconventional methods, you know, uh, figuring this stuff out, but he, when he grills poor Elvina Shaw, she's a, She's in way over her head. You know, she's just like, even when she gets found out that like, and you know, her boss uh, tells her what's the line uh, that I know is one of your favorites when she tells her you are fired from the fucking universe. You're fired. You're fired from the fucking universe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, uh, I, I, I think it was right. Was it previous to this scene or, or just after the scene where uh double face kind of, with with no kind of hint of any kind of anything going on, just pops the top of his jar out, comes to life, and his tentacles come out, enters the other jars, and reanimates the other creatures. Yeah, it's very yeah. no lead up or explanation whatsoever. It's just like, okay, this one's alive, and it's gonna bring these ones to life for no inexplicable, no explicable reason whatsoever. So, cause plot. <laughs> yeah, it. it yeah, it just would I would have liked, like I said, a little bit more backstory. I would have liked appreciated some backstory, like you know, 
this, you know, came from this place and it was owned by X and it can do Y, Z, you know what I mean? Like, I would have liked to have a little bit of back, backstory to this character or to the to the oddity. We could have really used a sequel or a spinoff. You never know. Maybe maybe we can. They're really into doing these spinoff movies lately. Maybe we can get like a spinoff to one of the <laughs> hideous creatures. Well, it, it deserves one. It definitely deserves one because, like, I want to know. Like, this movie left, you know, it, it's a good movie. I like it, but it leaves a little bit to be desired. I, it leaves you wanting more. Uh, at least for me, it did. It left me wanting to go, I want to know more about these characters. Absolutely. I felt like it was only that this movie was only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, there was the suggestion that, you know, they, they could and would bring these, you know, characters back. And I just, for whatever reason, just never really. Uh, materialized so which is unfortunate you know there there would be continuations within this universe but unfortunately not with uh said oddities so right now <laughs> there's a lot of things that go unexplained and things that kind of leave out they're left out in the open to leave you kind of go huh but the biggest kind of what the fuck moment or the biggest you know the moment of uh, not being able to suspend my disbelief of this film is that detective leonard uh cantor uh can charge 160 dollars an hour and that anybody would pay him that much like yeah, even really for like he didn't really do a whole lot either no <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even have a gun. like no, no, he doesn't have a gun. He's not, uh, he can't fight. He's, you know, he even says, you know, you don't pay me for that. He's like, you pay me for my brains and my wits and my detecting skills. And I'm like, well, then you're still overpaid by at least a good $125 an hour, sir. That was in 1996 dollars. Imagine a, a, a canter nowadays. It would probably be like $300 an hour or something. Yeah, he's getting like lawyer fees and shit, you know, type pay. Like I guess that was the note I had in big capital letters. Uh, detective is way overpaid. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, because he doesn't really do a whole lot. The most, the most de like detective work that he does is when he basically gets Alvina to admit that she, you know, I guess kind of double crossed Miss Yost and narked to uh, Lorca because she somehow felt like she needed. It's funny because she's such a dumb character, but she's so like like put off by the fact that Miss Yo would double cross Dr. Lorca in favor of Lazar. Yeah. <laughs> so she has the need to like go behind her back and narc, which I always thought was such an odd thing for her character to do because her character seems so dense and just like disconnected from reality <laughs> to a degree that I I've always found it kind of odd that she would give a shit personally. Yeah. <laughs> Well, one, that she would give a shit, and two, that she would even, like, have the thoughts deep enough to, you know, to even comprehend, like, oh, this isn't right. They they really shafted this guy. I'm going to tell him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it just seems like something that would go over her head. <laughs> I, I love the part, though, when she, when, uh, Elvina is being grilled by him. And she's like, she smokes on the job. She drinks. She doesn't even wear any panties. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> <In the> office. <laughs> like, with different men all the time. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, 
it's it's got some great comedy this is much more of a comedy than a horror film i think you know at least the first half you know the first half definitely dialogue is really really hilarious yeah it didn't really become like a full-on horror movie until like the last like 10 or 15 minutes because it's mostly just character shenanigans up to that point because the oddities themselves even when they become uh alive they aren't really benevolent benevolent creatures they're just they're just there they just want out (laughs) so they aren't outwardly violent they just are to get what they want to leave (laughs) they just want they just want out and they even say and they they can't talk you know even though there's kind of a little bit of like whispery kind of dialogue that double face says to the other the other creatures but you know they even when they communicate in those little notes that they send uh notes or not hulk it's a porcupine baby writes out the little notes and stuff which no one else can decipher but somehow like alvina can read well i think it's because it was on her level it was at her level of simplicity (laughs) you know but let's like even talk about like how they get trapped in the castle you know everybody shows up the detective with alvina and napoleon and sheila all show or not sheila but uh miss yos all show up at Lorca and Sheila's place. And, he, you know, Lorca is trying to one-up Napoleon. You know, Napoleon just wants his oddity back. You know, he he bought it fair and square. He wants it back. He's there to convince Lorca to give it back. And he's like, Lorca's more, uh, <laughs> you know, more in tune with just trying to one-up Lazar. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, Mike, Mike, you know, is this a big prick-waving contest? Is this kind of a, hey, my dick is bigger than your dick. My collection is better than yours. And he's more more concerned with that than anything. Yeah, they're like spoiled children fighting over like who's got the best toys. Yep. Yeah. Who's got the most GI Joes? You know. <laughs> but then when he go he goes to show him, you know, he's like, I think Lazard has even said, you know, I'm not going to concede. I'm not going to, you know, like he has a moment where he, you know, he says like, that's right. I'll admit it. Your collection is better than mine. And then literally two seconds later. You know, uh, he, he, Lorca breaks Lazar, but then just not yet. He's like, I know you've got better collection than even this. So then he goes to show him his his current oddities, and they have, of course, all broken free, and they have escaped. So he has, uh, Lorca has uh, Sheila throw a switch, which I think is funny that she doesn't even reach over and touch the switch. She just pokes it with her little toe and just kind of switches it, which yeah, locks them. Like- the chimp or something and just kind of like flips the switch with her foot (laughs) like i love that i love that part but like when the fight scene that that uh comes after this scene after they're all locked in between Lorca and lazar has got to be some of the most comical lazy fighting i've ever seen it's it's not good i mean like it's just Lorca biting and gnawing on lazar's ear it looks like he's almost like like he's necking with him. It doesn't really even look like he's biting. It just looks like he's sucking on his ear. It's really awkward and really weird. Like biting his ear pre Mike Tyson ear biting, mind you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, like uh, the note I have here. Well, the oddities have, have escaped. Oh shit, this is not going to be good for anybody. I love that Lorca thinks that Lazar steals them when they've literally like. They have just been in each other's presence 
the majority of the entire time, so he would have had no way to steal them. But he's intent on thinking that he, that they did steal them until they see the little like, you know, uh, chemical trail of them escaping. Oh, yeah. Oh, but yeah, like the, he never le- you know leaves his presence for other than like a couple of minutes. If he did steal them, where did he steal them to? He didn't take them out of the house or out of the castle. Even Detective Leonard even says like. He's been here the entire time. Where did he, could he possibly have taken them? And a, and a good collector would never take them out of the jars. <laughs> like, right, right. Uh, like, the, like the one oddity that uh, Lazar comes out with that is obviously just open because he's holding it by the the rim of the jar. Yeah, unless he like had the top off so he could like reach in and like because he <laughs> there's lines where I think you know, uh, Napoleon is talking about how Lork is probably like you know caressed his his you know his baby and they're like fondling it and violating it with his hands and stuff for all we know that's probably what he was doing to that one that had the open <laughs> that's right in there like well get- there is the line there is the line when uh sheila brings Lorca the the original oddity that she you know that is in question that reanimates all the other oddities she even says to him you know doc you know should i give you some time alone here and even says yes yes i would like that and this is kind of like oh oh he's gonna touch he's gonna touch them or he's gonna touch himself and we shouldn't be seeing any of this kind of bizarre like uh, near sexual level of (laughs) gratification of like possessing these weird deformities (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, hey, everyone's got a fetish, so. Yeah, you know, we, 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 I'm not trying to kink shame. I'm just saying it's a little weird. <laughs> but a bit left of the norm. So. Right, yeah, a little, yeah, little, little, little left of norm. But, uh, well, then Lorca puts everybody into a closet, basically a glorified closet. He locks uh, the detective and uh, Napoleon, Elvina, and, and Sheila all into a room while he's going to search the rest of the castle and try to, uh, you know, he's going to try to find where his uh, oddities went to. And he totally trashes his own place. Instead of just looking for them, he's literally trashing the shit out of his own castle. It just seems counterproductive. Yeah. But, I mean, it's got $50 million, He can afford it, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> He can trash a couple of chairs and some paintings. He'll just buy another one. The the, the creatures start communicating. I thought this was the one where it really started to get interesting because the uh, the creatures start communicating with them like almost through like a Morse code, you know, just tapping, you know, tap twice for yes or once for no or whatever, and but our our. I can't really say our heroes of the film because there's really no hero of this film. There's just worse people and and, and bad people. But you know they're you know they're communicating with them. But when they finally like do break the the, the you know the prisoners out and they see the the oddities are just standing there, Lazar just goes completely crazy. You know, he, he is willing to pay the others, any one of them, a million apiece, a million apiece for each one of them if he can, if they'll help him, uh, you know, capture them. 
And then Sheila, of course, has being the the bitch of a character that she is, or not that not uh not Sheila character, sorry, uh, the Miss Yost character. Uh, is like I'll do it, but I want two million. And he doesn't even haggle. He's like done. Yeah, because she's like, if Alvina can get a million, I'm definitely worth two. <laughs> like, oh, uh, but and then even Lorca shows up as in sees his quote unquote babies alive. And Sheila has the great one-liner, and she just, with the total deadpan, just says, wow, this is really weird. And with all the things that she has seen at this point, that's what she finds weird. But You know, coming from a character with a weird lifestyle in and of itself, so that's saying something, so. Right, yeah. This is this is the point where that's just too much for her. Sheila's just like, you know, I'm, I'm done. I've, I've checked out at this point. <laughs> We got the best one-liner there, though, there, when uh, uh, Miss Yost just says, fuck it, I'm throwing the blanket, and she throws the blanket on, on them, and she's trying to, like, gather the three of them up, but she turns around and falls down instantly, and uh, what's, uh, when, when she gets an, she literally just yells, my ass, and she's <laughs> seen that she's gotten an ass full of the quills from uh, one of the creatures. <laughs> Talk about porcupine baby and the booties. <laughs> yeah, porcupine baby got her in the booty. Mm-hmm. Like it, this is one of the weirdest seeds because, like, the creatures attack. One of them gets a gun, fires at, uh, gets the gun from Sheila, fires at them, doesn't hit anybody. But now yeah. it's at the point where our enemies, you know, everybody's kind of an enemy of one another. They're kind of banding together to either. You know, Lorca and Lazar are not banding together, but they're kind of fighting one one another, wanting to get you know the oddities to trust them because they're like, "I'll take care of you," and they're like, "We're you know," and Lorca's like, "I've already taken care of you. I've kept you from harm," and blah blah blah. They they're just they drive their drives, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's so <laughs> ridiculous. It's just like like uh, how are you trying to reason with these creatures that you're not even sure if they're even communicating with you on any kind of level because they can't they speak. To, they have to be superhuman because I have to say this like when the when the the blimness is like shooting the gun, there are clearly no recoil or anything because like a creature about as you know big as you know what your two feet put together or something and like yeah, I think about as big as a raccoon maybe you know. Across the across the castle or something, it always it makes me think of like you know watching Chucky shoot a gun or something. And it's like, or baby Oopsie Daisy for that matter. It's like you know how how do they not just like fly across the room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because because you know physics and science and shit, you know, has, has no place here. It has no place here whatsoever. Super oddity. So. And another note I had here all of a sudden, because we really finally, you know, for the first half of the movie, you never really see the oddities. They're always kind of shown at at an obscure angle. You never see a real close-up. You really, in this last third of the movie, you really start seeing them in in their, you know, in detail. They are so slimy. They're so fucking slimy. And, you know, uh, what's the, there's uh, Porcupine Baby, Double face and the blemness blem- and blem- yeah, that one. When that one starts to, everybody else has kind of left the room. Poor Miss Alvina Shaw's left sleeping in bed, and she gets just poor woman gets totally violated by this creature, and he's basically like assaulted by him in her sleep. Yeah, and she doesn't wake up. 
you know, like when this thing's crawling across her and starts like, you know, violating her, but she freaks the hell out and they set a trap and poor Alvina, you know, she, she was clueless, but I don't know that she deserved to die the way she did, but you know, they trip her. She falls from the, an alcove of the, of the castle and falls to her death. And, you know, again, you know, uh, the enemies, everybody has to kind of band together, you know, and, uh, all just like a straight up like very quick spiral to the ending like it's a very like oh the first death happens and then like literally every like the climax of the movie like wraps itself up very fast thereafter there's some little bit of bad fight choreography between lazar and Lorca, which i think it was meant to be that way i don't think it was deliberately choreographed choreographed bad but these were supposed to be like two grown grown ass men that were fighting like little kids. At least yeah. that's what I took yep. away from it. They're big children being dumb. Yeah, you know, like even when Lorca takes the sword and hands it to Lazar and is like, "We're going to fight to the death. We're going to have a duel." And I'm just like, "That's something like a little kid would do." Yep. You know, that's a petulant child that wants to just, you know take his ball and go home, but he's going to punch the bully in the head, you know, before he leaves. But everything gets starts happening very abruptly. That's where I find I feel like the movie does fall apart a little bit. Like you know, I still like it, but it, it falls a bit because we get some bad fight choreography. Miss Yost gets bumped off really abruptly. I, I I felt like her character, for being just you know as kind of iconic as she is in this movie, just deserved something a little, little bit better of a send off than just being speared. You know, and it's also done kind of in a way that you don't really see what happens yeah it's very abrupt <laughs> just kind of comes out of nowhere too honestly like she's like dead all of a sudden like oh yeah it's just like oh oh i guess well that's that's the end of this this one okay like that's where we're going with this all right and then you know we had the bit of now we skipped ahead a little this a little ago quite a bit there was a a scene 15 minutes into the movie where Sheila activates a trap door in the floor, which is extremely foreshadowing for what comes next that lowers into an acid bath where mm. she disposes of, you know, the evidence that they had stolen uh, Lazar's oddity from the beginning, you know, her, her gorilla mask, the cooler and everything. So like, it was just, you know, it's classic slasher movie kind of trope, you know, in a way or horror movie trope where you're going to focus on a weapon or something for two seconds in the beginning of a movie, not show it again for the next 75 to 80 minutes, but bring it back, you know, yeah, just giving, giving that notion that it's, it's there. So when you reuse it later, it makes sense that it was there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. But then, you know, they're, they're fighting on the ground and, you know, they flip the switch and Lazar and Lorca both fall for, to their death and to the acid bath. And I kind of felt like, I don't know if you felt the same way, but I felt cheated in a way because it was done again so abruptly. And it's, we don't ever see them, you know, we don't get that payoff of seeing them going into the acid bath. You never see the acid bath. You just hear a splash, some smoke rising up into frame, and it's just, you know, very quick, very abrupt. Yeah, it, it is a very sudden and sort of quick, <laughs> quick wrap up there, because I think it's uh, Lorca is the one who's still kind of hanging and he kind of climbs up briefly before he falls in to his then, <laughs> his then death. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 
technically in the in the bigger scope of things he survived that acid bath but um yeah he, because he's in two more movies you know <clears throat> and and i want to say in in demonic toys too he does have kind of like the the halloween for dr loomis kind of like generic burn scar on like one side of his face you know because <laughs> doesn't even doesn't leslie jordan even make make a uh make a comment about his scar or something like that, I think, in the movie? Or maybe I'm wrong. I've, I haven't seen I, seen it in years. I believe someone does, yeah. But then, you know, when you get to Ravenwolf, it's, like, totally gone, so. Well, just like Loomis, by the time he got to part six, he didn't have the scar anymore either. So, uh, you know, sequels, yeah. sequels, schmequels. Yeah. But, yeah but then, it is very fast how they just kind of like fall in and it's like oh i guess they're dead you know and i think what Lorca tells sheila like oh take care of my babies before he falls into right a fake die so yeah and, and then like within what 60 seconds maybe two minutes later sheila tricks the uh you know the oddities to get close to the acid bath and tricks them by throwing the key card into the acid bath, you know, this is the, your only way out of here. Cause that's what they want. They don't really want to hurt anybody. They don't want to kill anybody. They even say that at one point, we want to be gone. We want out. They just want to be free. They don't want to be anybody's oddity anymore. They don't want to be in a jar. They don't want to be held against their will. They just, they're not really villains in this movie. They just want out. Yeah. But she tricks them by pulling the rug out from under them literally and having them fall quote unquote to their death into the acid bath. Yeah. And, and she's like, oh, I, well, I told Dr. Lork I'd take care of them. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, yeah, you took care of them, all right? Yeah, yeah. she uh, <clears throat> took care of them. But at this point in the movie, the only character that I was rooting for was Sheila. So the fact that her and the detective uh, Leonard is the, are the only characters that technically, quote-unquote, technically make it out alive, you know, it bode, it did bode well with me because I was like, she was the only one that I was rooting for by the end. I was just like, she's the only one I care about. She's she's a cool character. I, I want to see her live to see another day. Yeah, and but, they're, they're, they're both truthfully probably like the purest characters of the bunch too because she, she is eccentric but not um, to a weird degree. You know, she, she knows who she is. She knows what she wants and she's, you know, still likable without being like a hateful bitch about it you know whereas like a belinda yost is a total like cunt um, oh yeah and, definitely and leonard Cantor is just sort of like he's just kind of like the the default like good guy because he's the the private dick you know so i guess it makes sense that they would be the ones to survive with the suggestion that maybe they team up you know and for, for the sequel yeah maybe it'll work for him so because she's a woman of many talents, so. <laughs> well, she even says as they're getting ready to drive off in this convertible at the end, which I also thought, I'm like, as cold as it is out, why would you not have that convertible top on? It would just... But, you know, we get our kind of, <clears throat> I call it the bumper ending, where Rutrow, the hideous, no pun intended, hideous oddities, are hiding in the trunk. They didn't fall to their death, because they do that shot where they show this little makeshift rope ladder that was in, you know, that pit of acid and, you know, that's our ending of the movie. We get that kind of bumper ending where it promises a sequel with that full moon is always so good about promising a sequel that we never, ever got. I would have loved to see double face climb up that ladder though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you know, maybe he would have used those uh, those tentacles that, that, that he had pop out. He could have probably just grabbed the, the edge of the damn trap door and climbed out from there. He wouldn't probably even need the fucking ladder, but... You know. And let's talk about those tentacles. They never come back into play other than when he reanimates all the other oddities. But it was like clearly the one moment, the one moment of the movie where they use some CGI. And I do feel like for all the things in this movie that didn't age well, that was something that did age well. Because they only, they relied on good practical physical effects for 99% of the movie. And they used the CGI back then in 97, you know, or 98 uh, to just that one time. Yeah, it was used very sparingly, so it, it can help when you use stuff like that sparingly, because even if it's not super, you know, Jurassic Park level type CGI, it's still, you know, you can get away with some quick shots and it age well, as opposed to, you know, some of these, you know, I don't have to name names, but like you can think of any number of movies that came out around the same time that were huge studio movies in the mid late 90s that everyone was like, oh, CGI is the new hotness. Let's use CGI. And then they just riddle their movie with like this preposterously cartoonish CGI that just doesn't age well. And, you know, I, I was, you know, saw some clips of some different movies today on TV that were just, you know, from some movies back back then that just did not age well. So, you know, they use it very sparingly and it helps that everything else is kind of tempered with really, really good looking uh, Mark Rappaport creature creatures that were like, you know, tangible props on set that always is better than computer animation. Yeah, I can appreciate a good, you know, practical creature effects. That was <clears throat> part of the reason why I loved Ouija's so much. Uh, you know, they had some CGI and they used it, you know, maybe a little more than sparingly, sparingly, but they relied on the good old-fashioned practical effects, and that's what makes that movie shine. And that's what makes this movie shine in, in some parts, is that those good, you know, practical creature effects... But uh, that being said, before we get into our final ratings review, I have to say now, because I saw Raven Wolf Towers before I saw this, mm-hmm. I now have a more deep appreciation for Raven Wolf Towers with them bringing back some of the characters that they did, you know, from this movie, uh, from Blood Dolls and whatnot, you know, and some of the other films that they brought characters back from. <clears throat> uh I just have a, a better appreciation now for Raven Wolf Towers and what they were going to do with that. I really wish now that's something we're going to have to cover here uh, sometime soon because I've been itching to cover that for a long time. Yeah, but uh, a pretty, pretty masterful full moon film, in my opinion. Uh, and and yeah, it's a great, great moment to bring back Lorca. It's funny because Lorca is kind of a like it's the same character, same actor, but. He seems to have different aims in each movie because whereas in Hideous, he's a collector of biological oddities. I wouldn't really say that's what he's doing in Demonic Toys 2 because <laughs> I don't really see those as being, I don't know, I mean, I guess they're biological oddities. But he goes in search of like a haunted toy, <laughs> which, you know, isn't really a biological oddity, I guess. I guess it can be if you look at it from a certain perspective. But then in, like, Raven Wolf, he's kind of just, I don't know, he's doing a whole other thing there. <laughs> so. But, yeah, well, yeah. 
character, and I love Michael Citronetti because he's a he's a great. He's actor. got such a. Yeah, he's he's got a little presence. Yeah, the presence he has, you know. I want to go back now and watch Goodfellas now that I know which character he played uh, as one of the cops. I know. Yeah. He's, he's in. I I got to go back and see what a young young uh, Lorca kind of looked like. He's great. I mean, he's obviously he he did a lot of her, you know, late Empire work with things like you know Cemetery High and Psychos in Love and galactic gigolo you know all of which he's he's so good in and then you know with later full moon obviously you've got hideous you know you've got the Lorca trilogy basically with hideous and demonic toys 2 and raven wolf he is myron stackpole the head of the family he actually has a a cameo in the creeps uh which is actually the second and only other full moon movie uh ronda griffin ever did as the lead in the creeps and he she was didn't even, do a whole lot of work, uh, did she? She, she only did. did four or five projects, I think. Yeah, she only was in a small handful of things and then kind of, I guess, uh, retired from film. So, yeah, like I said, I'm not not trying to throw shade here, but she was not a really uh, a really great actor. Yeah, I can I can understand why she didn't do a lot of work and you know and maybe she found it it just wasn't for her you know but I, I applaud her for giving it a try a lot of people never even try so yeah you know a funny thing a funny thing to notice is that michael citronetti would also be in what is basically probably the first <laughs> pulse pounder film which was uh in earlier releases called mystery monsters it would later uh be released by full moon under the moonbeam banner with the title goobers where he, Citronetti plays a creature in it, much like, um, you know, head of the family. He's the head goober, which ironically. Isn't that what they end up calling? Yeah, which is what Cantor always calls the oddities and hideous. You know, oh, let's get your goober. <laughs> you <know? laughs> once, once again, I love a mute movie where it creates its own kind of dialogue. Yeah, you know? and. and- yeah, very Trancers-esque of them. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, Citronetti was the head of, like, a, a trio of weird uh, creatures from another world who ended up in on Earth, and they got captured by, actually, Biff Maynard, who played Hap Ashby in Trancers. Oh, yeah! Oh, Hap! He plays an actor on a, a kid's show. He plays a guy called Captain Mike, and Captain Mike has these little magical creatures that are like his pets that help him do, you know, silly shit. And he's got, you know, some children that are his friends and stuff. And the child actors on the show start to suspect that the creatures aren't special effects props, that they're actual real creatures. And they are real creatures that Captain Mike has um, imprisoned, uh. trying to save them. And the only one that's an actual person is the lead goober, which is Citronini and you know, makeup and stuff, you know, and a little, you know, with his head in like a prop and the other two are just like actual, like articulated props, <laughs> but he's a, he's a great creature actor. He's a, he's a great comedic actor. He was even the voice of Mogyar, the agent who is dispatched to, um, take down Craw, the sea monster. Oh, and so he does a voice for that. He did the voice of the little Italian mushroom man. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, that- this movie is filled with uh, some great comedic uh, timing from both Centronity and Lavelle. And, and and even Jerry O'Donnell, you know, for kind of the lame duck that Detective Leonard is, he's got some great comedic timing. So th- that's what the, that's what shines in this movie: the creature effects and the comedic Definitely. angles of it. But that being said, <clears throat> uh, let's go ahead and do our final uh, review and ratings. And you know, you know how the rules go around here: rating on a scale from one to ten. So have at it. Definitely, you know, hideous is. Definitely, you know, like I said, I think it's one of the weirder full moon movies that we've ever gotten, but I think that that actually works to its advantage because it makes it stand out more. Uh, it's definitely got some, it's got great artwork. That that original VHS cover is pretty magical, and that really helped, you know, sell the, the movie, and it's, I think it's really anchored by some solid comedic performances from, you know... <laughs> Mel Mel Johnson Jr. and Citronetti and Lavelle. Uh, I don't I don't dislike Rhonda Griffin as much as I think you do, but uh, I think everyone's really, for the most part, solid. I, there's no one I would say is necessarily a bad actor personally, but um, the the three are really the the stars of the show to me. Like you go to watch it, you're watching it for the creatures. And those are the three characters. I think that, you know, if you walk away from the movie with any, anyone else, but those three characters, um, <laughs> it's up because the, the creatures were great. I love all four of the, the little goobers themselves. Um, cool characters. I wish they'd been brought back for more stuff, honestly, because I think they could have really played around with them and uh, done some neat stuff with them. You know, all that being said, you know, the cool, you know, very classy, you know, castle locations, the really snappy dialogue and a pretty, pretty overall solid script from Benjamin Carr. It's funny because we watching and discussing it with you. I, I do. I did kind of have that realization. And I'm like, yeah, there is that point, like right when Alvina falls, it's like a rush <laughs> to the finish line to end the movie, which. uh I'll 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 make a weird comparison to you know I don't know if you've seen Ouija Mummy yet movie I wrote and produced. No, uh, I have not. I I've seen like it. Animator, but I haven't seen Ouija Mummy. See, I I I love Ouija Mummy, and there was a really hilarious review for it that said, you know, it's a it's a feature film's worth of buildup for a short film's worth of payoff because <laughs> it's a lot of buildup, and then when you get to the the last act. You know, climax, it's like a rush to the finish line. And that's kind of how Ouija Mummy plays out. You know, it's a lot of buildup. And then when the when the shit hits the fan, it's kind of like boom, 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 the end. <laughs> and that's kind of what happens here is, is it's like Alvina Falls. It's like boom, boom, boom. These people are dead. The end. <laughs> Roll credits. Yeah, but, that's uh, exactly what happens. But you know what? Like it doesn't stuff like that can feel awkward when you're watching it, I think. But it doesn't give you time to get bored. So I don't oh, know. It's never boring. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with a structure like that either. You know, so overall, I think Hideous is actually a really fun movie. I think it's actually one of the stronger overall films, uh, especially of of the Full Moon label, because uh, I think Empire, you know, stuff and Full Moon stuff they're cut from the same cloth, but the directorial approaches and sometimes the budgetary approaches and things they're all very different but of the more independent independent full moon 
uh, fair that Charles Band has directed. I think it's probably one of his best, you know, next to like Blood Dolls. Um, yeah, Blood it, Dolls is definite favorite. Yeah, yeah, it is a fun, fun movie, and it is, I think, a travesty that they didn't at least make one sequel. So um, I will agree with you there. That's for sure. Overall, for me, I think it's a solid eight. It's thoroughly enjoyable. It's never boring. It has a really hilarious rogues gallery of silly characters, fun monsters, cool location, hilarious dialogue, lots of goofy shenanigans. I think it's a I think it's a fun view all around. If you like full moon movies, this is the kind of movie. When you think of a full moon movie, this is the kind of stuff that you're thinking of. I especially have to agree with your last statement. When you think of full moon movies, this is what you think of. Because it's it's little creatures killing people. You know, it's it's puppet masters, it's it's dolls, it's you know, the the subspecies and even whatnot. You know, um I'm probably coming in a little lower than you and I'll explain why. Uh like it's it's that third act. The third act, like I said, it's not necessarily a detriment to all films when they wrap things up really quickly like that. But I felt like this movie left me wanting more. You know, I wanted a follow up. Like it could have been an easily been a part two. You know, or they could have would have been fine if they gave us more sequels. <laughs> yeah, like if there had been a, a sequel to it, I would have come in higher on the standalone film. Like the creature effects are great, and I gotta agree that. That early VHS and that poster artwork is just the bomb. It's so good. And the creatures are good. The c- comedy is good. It's got great characters. Great comedic timing for fucking everybody. I I can't get past Rhonda Griffin. You know, I, I, I'm maybe I'm being a little hard on her, you know, and I... Uh, I apologize, Miss Griffin. If, you're, if you ever happen to listen to this, I apologize if I was a little harsh on you, but, you know... I'm coming in at a six out of ten. I, I still could highly recommend it to anybody who loves full moon movies. Now, I would not be apt to recommend this to the casual horror fan or the casual comedy horror fan. But if you are a fan of full moon movies, this is pretty much one of the ultimate films that came out. Is the you know post? Uh, I was going to say you know the post Paramount era. Uh, definitely. But yeah, you know, it's still a good film. You know, I always say anything uh, a five and above, I can recommend anything under a five. I can't recommend to the casual viewer. But if you love a good creature feature, you love good practical creature-driven effects, and you like a good, uh, you know, a good comedy to boot, definitely check out Hideous. It's one of the, the better directed out of, like, Charlie's, you know, the latter half of his career. It's directed really, really well. The, the castle is a great location. The actors, you know, for the most part are really, really good. It's a small cast, you know, but yeah, definitely rec- recommend it, you know, six out of 10. Yeah. It's got all those earmarks that, you know, you, when you think of full moon movie, you know, it's got little creatures, silly characters, like human shenanigans, castles, sword fights, hot women, silly dialogue. It's even got a, a, a cool mid, uh, mid sixties, you know, 1963, uh, you know, uh, not Corvette, I was going to say, or a Chevy uh, convertible, you know, it's got a nice, it's got hot cars, hot women, 
blood, violence, comedy. It's it's got a great castle. It's got a little bit of everything that makes Full Moon, you know, special. And you can't forget those classic gloomy Romanian skies doubling as like Middle America. <laughs> yeah, they were trying. They were trying everything they had to, to pretend that they were just totally red, rednecks. <laughs> totally. They had me convinced until they started talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? The, 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 foreign you know shot movies like this too this is probably one of the ones with a bigger uh i i would call it Im- imported cast you know where where they flew they flew a lot of americans to romania for this movie you know um because you look at a I lot mean, really of just the extras uh just those couple of extras they had in it were the only like local yeah just those two extras because everyone else is legit like you know Americans, you know, flown flown out for that movie. You know, you look at some of the, you know, like subspecies movies or something. It's like, you know, two, three actor, you know, tops, you know, like right, right. the Dakota, you know, ones that he banged out, you know, like, you know, double shoots back to back some of these things. And it's like, you know, you got like one or two American actors and everyone else is foreign, you know, so this has one of the larger, um, American casts, which I think also um, is a is a good uh, assist to it. I think playing better because you don't have uh, a large supporting cast or primary characters who clearly don't understand English, <laughs> posing as Americans, uh, speaking yeah, the, well, speaking dialogue, kinda... really have no concept what it means. So. Yeah, they're just kind of phonetically, you know, kind of just calling it in, you know. Well, and that being said, I think we'll call this an end to the end to the show. Uh, I want to thank you for coming back on. I know we haven't recorded, gosh, and it's been about a month or, or longer. It's uh, been nice to get back and start recording again. Yeah, it's been a it's been a been a minute, but it's always good to get back in the saddle and you know watch some i've clearly i'm sure you've seen i'm i'm always watching full moon stuff so it's uh you know any opportunity to sit down and you know whack classic full moon is a a good time to me so i said uh, to my wife earlier i'm like there's three constants and constants in this world is water's wet sky's blue and dustin hubbard is always watching full moon movies <laughs> <laughs> and I can I can always count on on him to to help me keep the the full moon dream alive. It's true. I I'm one of uh probably the the proud few bizarros you know quote unquote super fans who always keep the <laughs> keep the dream alive even when even when things look bleak. I <laughs> I'm still the number one cheerleader. So. Yep. Yep, I consider myself to be somewhere in that cheerleading squad. Uh, you know, I may have fallen out of love, you know, a few points, you know, in my life over. But, you know, there's something about Full Moon that uh, always keeps me coming back, and I'll always keep coming back. It's, there's, a, there's a comfortable familiarity to it that is always uh, always relaxing. So it's always always welcome in, in my day. <laughs> so. Yep, yeah. And, and to watch a Full Moon movie is just... Is, 
watching a full moon movie is like hanging out with an old friend. Yep, but you know what? And yep. what better what better escapism? Because at this point in you know time, we all need a little escapism. So, and you know, yes. like when I watch Full Moon, it reminds me of being a kid and you know growing up, you know, as a teen and stuff. And you know, Full Moon Full Moon got me through a lot. So you know, it's always it's always same here, same here, sir. Yeah, it's always comfort food. And I, when I say this. I don't I don't say it lightly, you know, but I'm still here doing what I do because full moon got me here. So, you know, and you can right on you can process that in a lot of ways, but it makes total sense to me and it's two thousand percent true. So And it and oh and it doesn't need to make sense to anybody else, right? Nope. Absolutely. Well that being said, I'm gonna bid you a fond farewell. Farewell, sir. I want to thank you again for giving me a couple hours of your time. And folks, you have been listening to Cinema Degenerations, Howling at the Full Moon. And keep coming back because we got more in store for you. Later. Just sneaking behind my back with that gauche, undiscriminating collector of medical garbage, Napoleon Lazar. How can I continue to do business with this dishonest woman? I say, if you can't beat him, Join us.